Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by a student of Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. Thank you. My name is, is Morris Newman. I'm a, a student um, here at uh, Dona Darge Lion's, Lion's Roar uh, Dharma Center. And again, uh, Lama Jinpa has, in his great kindness and uh, depth of understanding, um, beyond mine, has asked me to give a little talk on poetry because he knows of my great interest in reading and writing poetry or, or attempting to read it. And um, um, uh, I, I feel, all false modesty aside, I'm really inadequate to the task because it's an, an enormous literature that spans continents and, and, and millennia. And uh, I'm going to try and uh, take on probably too much material here, but at the very least, um, um, even my talk is, is of questionable value. You will be introduced to several things of permanent interest to you, I hope. Um, normally, talks here in the temple deal with Dharma matters directly. This is a bit of an excursion because poetry can be a medium a vehicle for communicating the Dharma, but not always. It can be it can be nonsense, and we'll we'll talk about that a little, a little further. Um, but before we get, you know, when you were a kid, remember that the ideal, the the fantasy you would have that you wouldn't begin dinner with spinach, but actually you would begin dinner you begin having dessert first, then spinach afterwards. So let's, let's actually honor that childhood custom and get directly and read some poetry first and then and then get into the uh, the boring academic stuff a little bit later. Um, uh, I want to begin with a, an epic, a, poet, a, poem, a, poem, a poetry epic about the life of the Buddha written by uh, Asvagosha. I believe it's dated from the second century uh, AD and it is a, an epic treatment of the life of the Buddha as, uh, as um, um, largely um, recorded in the sutras. Um, an epic uh, for those who don't remember from high school, or um, let's simply say for the time being that it is a, um, um, uh, a, a great narrative based on the life of a hero. This is a scene um, uh, from a chapter called Becoming Dejected, where Prince Siddhartha who was pre- uh, uh, previously left led a um, entirely protected life in the palace of his father, goes outside the palace and sees someone who is dead. And this is a, a traumatic um, uh, corner-turning event for uh, Siddhartha. Uh, please keep in mind, not to be an, an overly um, uh, strong reader, um, but see how, or sh- see how the poet is showing us this horror of death that Siddhartha is witnessing from the point of view of Siddhartha seeing it for the first time. I think this is actually really beautifully done. Then the king's son, that is Siddhartha, of course, said to the charioteer, who is this man being carried by four men and followed by people who are downcast? He is well adorned, yet they weep for him. And then the driver, whose mind was bewildered by those same pure deities of the pure realm, explained the matter frankly to his lord, a matter that he should have kept concealed, i.e. the king had told him not to expose Siddhartha to the harsh realities of life. We resume. Quote, the charioteer speaks, 
lying here unconscious, like straw or a log, bereft of mind, sense, breath, or qualities, this is someone his dearest ones discard, though they nurtured and guarded him with care. And when he heard these words of the charioteer, Siddhartha was shaken a bit and said to him, Is this dharma peculiar to this man, or such the end that awaits all men? The charioteer said to him, This is the final act of every man, whether one is low, middling, or noble. In this world, for all men, death is certain. Then the king's son, as he learned about death, although steadfast, soon became despondent. Leaning his shoulder against the railing, he said in a voice that was resonant, This is the inevitable end of all men. Yet the world rashly revels, casting fears aside. The hearts of men, I suspect, must indeed be hard that they journey along this road so unperturbed. This is beautiful. Later on, there is a a conversation, uh, an argument, between... Buddha and his father. His father is saying, is advancing an argument that's very much like the current argument someone from our culture would offer, which is why leave the world, why neglect worldly pleasures? (coughs) Pardon me. You can be religious on Sunday or Saturday, and then you can go and you know, have parties and eat good food and, and go to the IMAX theater and, and these kinds of things. And then the, the, the Buddha, respectfully, because this is his father, uh, makes a re- response to him. Give me one second. So Bishma, okay, hearing what they did to please their fathers, all these people he's been talking about, the king has been talking about, you too must do what your father desires. Knowing that the queen who brought you up, although to Augustia's region she is not gone, the queen is anguished, crying piteously all the time, like a loving cow that has lost its calf. Like a pen separated from the cob, like an elephant forsaken within a forest by her mate, your anguished wife, who is widowed, although her husband is alive, you must rescue her with your sight, your only son so young, not deserving such grief who bears the torment in his heart. Rescue Rahula from the grief for his father, like the full moon from Rahu's grasp. The Bodhisattva. His spirit completely full, listened to the remarks of the chaplain. Knowing one is excellent, he thought for a while and gave this excellent and meek reply. Quote, <clears throat> I recognize the love fathers have for their sons, above all the love the king bears for me. Although I know it, I'm forced to forsake my kin by the fear of sickness, old age, and death. If in the end one were not severed from dear ones, then who would not wish to see his dear kin? But when their severance, even after a long time, even my loving father, I forsake. You spoke about the king's grief on account of me. I am not pleased that he is so distressed. Amidst associations as fleeting as dreams, when separation is bound to take place. And when you see the jumbled process of this world, your mind ought to arrive at this verdict. The cause of anguish is neither father nor son. Ignorance is the cause of this anguish. 
really fantastically beautiful. And let's jump, um, um, since Buddhism is no great respecter of time and place, um, allow myself the freedom to go from century to century and culture to culture. Here we are um, in um, China, medieval China, and we're looking at poems written by or spoken spontaneously by monks or, or masters uh, at the time of their death. Let's see if I can... This one is Japanese. Here we are. We'll go with Japanese one because I don't want to make you wait. This is a very famous poem named Ryokan, who lived in uh, uh, around the same time as uh, Wordsworth, about 1757 to 1831. This is his death poem. Without a jot of ambition left, I let my nature flow where it will. There are ten days of rice in my bag, and by the hearth, a bundle of firewood. Who prattles of illusion or nirvana? Forgetting the equal dusts of name and fortune, listening to the night rain on the roof of my hut, I sit at ease, both legs stretched out. Um, here's one by uh, a death poem by uh, a monk named Tanzan. Madness, the way they gallop off to foreign shores. Turning to one mind, I find my Buddhahood above self and others, beyond coming and going. This will remain when all else is gone. On a slightly lighter vein, there's a different, there's a, a famous mode of Japanese poetry you all are familiar with um, called haiku. You may not be aware that many of the haiku masters, including Basho, Busan, and Isa, if you're familiar with those names, were actually um, Zen practitioners, Buddhist, Buddhist practitioners, and um, their poems can be read, if we wish to, in, in a Buddhist light. Um, um, one of the um, conscious aims of a Japanese poet is to leave some um, ambiguity, some openness, the ability to um, interpret the poem um, in an open way. Not that the poem doesn't have meaning, but uh, um, that we, we, we meet the poem uh, from where we are. So, um, 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 Here's, here's, a, here's Isa, who's my personal favorite among this group. Uh, Buddha law, shining in leaf dew. It's a beautiful image of evanescence, of the eternity of the Dharma, but, it's, it, but manifesting at that moment um, in, 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 the, in the, the, the very transient phenomenon of, of dew on a leaf. And here's um, uh, another a more explicit poem by Isa, Listen, all creeping things, the bell of transience. Or don't weep, insects. Lovers, even the stars themselves, must part. Here's another poem by Isa. Where there are humans, you'll find flies, and Buddhas. So um, um, with that chocolate done, actually, 
I want to add one more bit of chocolate that you may um, um, be already familiar with, if I can find my notes here. Oh, there's also a group of poems that are non they're not explicitly Buddhist in origin, but can be read with a Buddhist view. Uh, and I was first became aware of this in an anthology by a man named R.H. Blythe, who was a scholar of Japanese poetry, who I believe uh, actually spent some time in a Japanese internment camp during World War II, and published uh, a really interesting collection, or series of, of collections, of a Japanese haiku. And one of the books, more unusual books of, by R.H. Blythe, was a... Um, uh, a collection of English poetry, or selections from English poetry, read in the eye of, of Buddhism or Zen Buddhism. When I first saw this, because I'm very rigid and Germanic and, and believe in you know strict categories, like how this is ridiculous. These people are not Buddhists. You know how can how can John Milton or John Clare or someone from 16th century England write a Buddhist poem? Well, there was a woman who lived by herself in a house in Amherst and named Emily Dickinson. And this is not a Buddhist poem, but I think it be, can be read with a, with, a, with, with, a, with, a, with a Buddhist view. It says, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell one's name, the live long June, to an admiring bog. Here's also, um, um, in terms of exchanging self for others, um, here's, here's a, a poem where um, uh, it's, not a, it's not a perfect exchange for others because there's a bit of bitterness or suspicion on the part of the poet as she eyes another person and says, what kind of, what kind of pain um, are you in? And is it comparable to my pain? Can we find common ground? Uh, and for some reason, the poet's a little bit suspicious. She thinks that her pain might be greater than the person that she's viewing. She says, I measure every grief I meet with narrow, probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. I wonder if they bore it long, or did it just begin? I could not tell the date of mine. It feels so old a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live, and if they have to try, and whether could they choose between, it would not be to die. There's more of that. Another poet that we will return to um, um, uh, that I think can be read with a, um, a Buddhist mind, and at least um, I have Lama's sanction to, to mention his name, is William Blake. And this poem, which I think about almost daily, um, strikes me as being very appropriate in terms of our compassion towards other sentient beings and our also our awareness of our littleness in the, the scheme of things called The Fly. This is from a, a collection that Blake wrote when he was about 25 years old called Songs of Experience. Little fly, thy summer's play 
My thoughtless hand has brushed away. Am not I a fly like thee? Or art not thou a man like me? For I dance and drink and sing till some blind hand shall brush my wing. If thought is life and strength and breath and the want of thought is death, then I am a happy fly if I live or if I die. Anyway, um, that's an important poem to me personally. Um, let's jump to the spinach in our this morning's presentation um, and, and see about uh, what could poems be. And here I've, I've really sort of gone back and forward, back and forth. Um, in one way, we think about poetry as, as something that college professors do in their spare time. It's, it's difficult, it's recondite, it's dry, it's boring, it's for a full, small minority of readers. And in terms of you know, uh, official academic poetry, that's correct. But in another way, poetry is around us all the time. And Dirk and I have spoken about this, that popular music is poetry. Folk songs are poetry. Uh, children's rhymes are poetry, as we will um, um, explore in, in one minute. Um, advertising is poetry. You deserve a break today from McDonald's. Or that's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. There's some sprung rhythm there. Um, <laughs> actually, those people who wrote, write those, um, that write those lyrics make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. They're, they're very, very skillful. I think advertising copies among the more skillful uh, poetry in our environment. Um, Hip-hop is poetry personified. And I don't like very much of it, but the, the, the energy, the sense of trance, the powerful rhythms, the, the, uh, um, the incredible wordplay that gets involved, um, the, uh, the ambiguity that, that, that is involved, uh, the sense of, of, um, of heroizing oneself is a thing that one finds in ancient poetry, like uh, the poetry of, of um, um, not Hesiod, but who's Pindar? Who was a, a poet who was who was who was hired by athletes to write um, poems in their honor, right? So, the, so there's this kind of a, 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 a slightly pimping aspect um, to uh, great classical poetry like Pindar. Um, of course, a lot of this poetry is bad, but it doesn't mean. But what we actually, but we also use popular songs. Um, and, and lyrics and these kinds of things to express our personal feelings. For better or for worse, true, they're mass manufactured and we live in a McLuhan-esque universe and all these things are true, but yet these are the uh, um, words that we have recourse to to express sometimes our deepest, our most intimate feelings. And the, uh, the famous uh, writer of country music lyrics once said that the, the best song is uh, Three Chords and the Truth. Um, um, and in this way, um, people who are unlettered poets, but who strike, who, who appeal to people's hearts, I think are more uh, worthy of being called true poets than some of them even more um, celebrated academic people are. I think someone like Hank Williams, or Woody Guthrie, or uh, Bob Dylan. Um, uh, and again, Dirk and I were talking about this the other day where I said people of, of, of our age group 
when um, would know any number of Bob Dylan albums by heart. And I'm not an especially good memorizer. I know, you know, I know, I know at least three or four Bob Dylan albums word for word. And it doesn't speak for the Beatles because they were so much uh, on the radio all the time or in the environment that you were forced to know all the, all the lyrics of every Beatle album. Um, there are three different kinds of poetry. Um, there's, there's real poetry, which is a very prestigious term. A, uh, someone who does something transcend, transcend, transcendentally well, transcendently well, rather, is often called a poet. When the composer Frederick Chopin published his first composition, the, poet, the, um, the composer Robert Schumann um, in a different country, just seeing the sheet music itself, said, ladies and gentlemen, a poet. So it's a term of great prestige. A person does not call herself a poet. Someone who does that is a scoundrel. If, if Napoleon were allowed to seize his crown from the hands of the pope and crown himself emperor, it's not possible for a versifier or poetaster to seize the laurels from the, the, poet, the, poem, the, the poet committee and, and crown herself, himself, with the same laurels. Um, someone else has to call you a poet. Um, and reminds me of a Hasidic story, which, um, where a man comes to the, um, the, uh, the, the, the scholar rabbi, the, commun- the community rabbi, the Rebbe, and says, you know, Rebbe, I had a dream. That I was, a, that I was, I became a great man. I became a great scholar rabbi. Is that is that important? Do you think that's going to come true? And the rabbi said, "Well, actually, when people, when other people begin dreaming about you, that's that's auspicious. Not when you dream about yourself." <laughs> uh, so the real stuff, which is very rare. Is called poetry, and the other stuff, where things are done correctly and has good technique and is thoughtful and well done, by people like me, is called verse. Respectable, readable, if you like that kind of thing, but not essential. Not essentially not going to survive uh, the uh, uh, the the um, ravages of time. The third kind of poetry. Um, is called doggerel. This is crap. This is Hallmark greeting cards. This is really bad stuff. Um, and this can be found in every category. Uh, it's a good word if you're not familiar with it. Doggerel. Uh, but what is poetry? This is a really, really slippery animal. Like a, like a, you know, a wet fish, a wet fish on the hook that you can't grab keeps jumping out of your hand. W.H. Auden, who was a very distinguished English poet in the last generation, came out with a very frustrating definition called simply, saying simply, poetry is memorable speech. That definition is uh, more interesting for what it leaves out than what it includes. What's, what's, what's our time look like right now? Am I, am I out of time? No. 
about so, 20 minutes. About 20 minutes? Okay, because I want to leave time for, for, for back and forth. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So what can we add to this definition? Poetry is memorable speech. This is like stone soup, right? The story where you, you put a stone in the pot and you add everything else. So let's add music, dance, and powerful language. And what's remarkable is that this combination, music, dance, powerful language, is found almost universally. We find it in cultures on every continent where our people live, even if those people have no contact with each other whatsoever. We find it in ancient cultures, in Scandinavia, in China, Japan, in the Americas. Let's make a, uh, a general myth about the origin of poetry, a syncretic myth, pretending to combine all the common features of these disparate um, um, uh, dances and recitations in diverse cultures. Let's say this. Let's say that once a year, we have a special ceremony in honor of the ancestors, in honor of the creation of the world, or maybe in honor of a, trickster, a magic animal, a trickster animal, the way um, the coyote is celebrated in Comanche myth. Let's say that there is a poet in our midst who is um, a shaman, a magic person, a magic maker, a, a, um, um, a person who is inhabited by spirits. He may be inhabited by the spirits of the ancestors and scold us for our bad behavior, how we fail to live up to ancestral standards. Uh, we, um, he may be uh, an animal. And this performance takes place through dance, through language, and through music. And all these arts have a common origin. In fact, religion and language itself may originate from this ceremony. Um, this, although poetry, music, and dance would eventually become, and theater, I guess, would become their own separate art forms over time, the idea that the poet is a prophet or someone who is inhabited by a, a god um, actually was a very um, durable idea. And now I need your help with the beginning of the um, Iliad because the poet, Homer, is really possessed by the goddess, right? And he's a mouth, Homer says, I'm the mouthpiece of the goddess. And he says, sing goddess, right? You remember the word? Yeah, where he's actually just, just a reed blowing in the wind of this divine spirit. So this is also very interesting that there's a sense of elevation or spiritual elevation in poetry. The poetry involves trance, involves um, uh, uh, rising to a higher state. Um, in the time of, even in our own time, uh, there was a poet named Robert Graves, a pretty decent poet, not a great poet, who fancied himself a pagan. And Robert Graves believed that there was a, um, a, a spirit called the White Goddess, who was the traditional muse uh, who was invoked in ancient times. And Graves, who was not a particularly humble man, <clears throat> says, I can look at the book. I can brush through a few pages of any new poetry book and see if the breath of the goddess 
has passed over these pages. Well, that's 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 pretty that's pretty um, um, alienating, perhaps. Um, although, when the best way to buy poetry in the bookstore is to be a little bit like Robert Graves and just open up in the middle and begin looking at it. And does it talk to you? Does it speak to you? Does it? Does it? You know, sometimes this is true of, of novels. Also, I just I just pick things up until I hear something that talks to me. Maybe I'm I'm 15 years old. And I need to hear something rebellious, or I'm you know aging and need to hear something sort of autumnal and and wistful. But it has has to be something alive and, and speaks to me. Um, um, and then I'll open the book. A lot of a lot of the poetry that's written now um, is influenced very heavily by in America by something that um, is called the confessional school. And the leading lights of the confessional school are two poets no longer alive. One was uh, Robert Lowell. Uh, the other was Sylvia Plath. Both of them were extremely gifted writers, but uh, their poetry was about themselves. They were not necessarily poets who spoke for the group. Um, one of my theories, and this can be um, debated, obviously, is that poet, the poet speaks for herself, but she also speaks for the group. The poet is a social being with a, with a, a group message. But this group message is, is spoken, must be spoken, in, a, in, in the language of a, sub, a subjective individual experience, which is one reason why um, I was so touched with the example uh, in The Life of the Buddha by Asvagosha, because it has, we, we all know these stories, but it has this added layer of human feeling or heart or subjectivity that I think is important. And while you're, while you're you know, rummaging, rummaging through poetry and this, this, and my girlfriend left me, okay, and I had a divorce, okay, and I took a drug and I was in jail, okay, okay, there's a mole on my back, okay, okay, okay. There actually, there are such poems. And then you, and then you open another book, and it says, Tiger, Tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of your eyes? What, what made you? What made this dangerous animal? On what wings dare he aspire, this maker? With what the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer and what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? What dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he, God, smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Buy that book. No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't bring them. <laughs> well, there, that should be together.
So where are we? Uh, we we've we, just as um, there is this. So so poetry has this very um, um, formal, religious, hieratic, um, ceremonial origin. But at the same time, poetry is also very everyday, very down to earth. We go to work with the radio on, and, and, and children are playing, and, and our iPhone is playing MP3s, and, and children are playing, or have, have little, little play songs. All over the world, all over the world, poetry is a very down to earth, everyday thing by which it's one of our typical modes of communication. Um, and to show, just for fun, I want to share this, if, if, if the microphone will pick it up. Um, uh, this is, this is a uh, recording of a, of a Scottish folk singer named Ewan McCall. And if you're a big, a big folky, you'll know Ewan McCall. If you're not a big folky, you'll know that he wrote a memorable song called um, the, the First Time I Ever I Saw Your Face. He wrote that song, The First Time. That's a good one. Yeah, you know, I knew you would. <laughs> Something like I just kind of knew that that was going to happen. Anyway, um, and I have found a recording of Ewan McCall recalling some of the children's songs that he himself sang as a child in the slums of uh, Scotland and, and Ireland. If you give me one moment, I'm going to see if I can actually pull off this miracle. Let's 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 I fell into a box of eggs, do-da, do-da, and all the yolk ran down me legs, do-da, do-da, day. Roll, boys, roll to California, yo. There's lots of gold, so I have been told in the streets of Manto. As I was going on a certain call, I spied some kippers on a Costa stall. I asked the price of the Costa there. He said, make that a penny a pair. I paid the penny, got ready to slope. I stuck them kippers under me coat. He said, mate, just leave them alone. Like bull peep sheep, they'll all go home. Them golden kippers to the door I led. Our tomcat smelled them and he dropped down dead. Me wife said, Charlie, they'll be my death. That's drunk again, I can smell the breath. Said the sanitary man, I'm just in time. With condis fluid and chlorid of lime. The cat complained, it still remains. I'll send some men to clean out the drains. Oh, them golden kippers, oh, them golden kippers I love to throw down by the golden stream. All the wedding of the green, stick your nose in margarine, for they're hanging men and women upside down in Stephen's Green. My ma's a millionaire, big feet and cuddly hair. Walking up and in the street, we are big banana feet. My ma's a millionaire. 
Thank you. One bright day in the in, in popular songs um, have a number of themes that are that are in common um, almost all around the world, and we know these. Uh, they're they're very often love songs, or they're songs about criminals, um, or criminals that are heroes, like uh, um, Woody Guthrie wrote about Pretty Boy Floyd. Um, in the height of the Depression, it says, well, you say that I'm an outlaw, and you say that I'm a thief. Well, here's a Christmas dinner for a family on relief. This is a time when there was a lot of um, um, anguish about, far- about banks foreclosing on farms. So that the, the next verse runs, when, you, when wandering through this world, you'll meet some funny men. Some rob you with a shotgun and some with a fountain pen. Wherever you ramble, what's oh, the last place going on? You'll never, you'll never see an outlaw turn a family from their home. That's it. Yeah. So that's really our, Woody Guthrie is really one of our great national poets uh, uh, after Whitman. Um, also, there's, there's love songs, and sometimes a love song has basic themes. Uh, the love song is the man is in love with the woman, and uh, her, her failure to um, uh, requite his love in some way or another uh, is causing him great pain. And he's dying. He's di- his, 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 she should take pity on him. He's dying. And in one case, uh, uh, Barbara Allen, uh, the young man, dies for love of Barbara Allen. And because she's so cruel and cold-hearted, and then she feels remorse, as she should, after the poor man's death for, for her for sincere love of her, and then she dies too out of out of grief and remorse. And then there are two beautiful um, a grave; they're buried together. And then there's a a, a bush or a tree on, on on each grave, and then the the, the boughs rise and, and weave together in a true love knot. See, it was kind of like a beautiful version. Remember at the end of um, um, Wuthering Heights, that, that crazy novel uh, where uh, both uh, the protagonists have, have, uh, are deceased. We look into the sky and we see Heathcliff and Kathy fighting eternally in the clouds. Uh, so, <laughs> Or there's also um, crimes, death, terrible crimes, disasters, Jonestown Flood. Um, uh, railroad trains um, are, 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 are very popular poetic. Um, also murder, or there's an entire genre still very popular. Uh, the murder, a man, mur- mur- man murdering women, the murder ballad. And all of you are, are fans of murder ballads. Does anyone know Neil Young? Down by the river. I shot my baby, shot her dead. Or Nirvana, are any Nirvana fans here? Am I the only Nirvana fan here? Okay, truth is out. Okay. (laughs) Nirvana would be the, um, 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 my girl, my girl, where you been tonight? I've been by the pines in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine. I've been sleeping all night through. She's terrified. He's about to kill her. That's a song by Lead Belly, covered by Kurt Cobain. Um, who knows some things about death, unfortunately. But Miss Otis also shot down. Which one? Miss Otis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> shot her lover. Shot her lover, yeah. 
Oh, Miss Otis, that's right. Miss Otis regrets she cannot see you today. She's unable to munch. She's a fatal woman. Women will kill you. Uh, Kind of a projection, I think, but we'll go on from there. So, Statistics don't bear you out. <laughs> no, it's men who do it. Yeah, it's, men, it's men's fantasies that women are dangerous and therefore yeah. do things that they oughtn't, they oughtn't have happen to done. Um, all this is by way of prelude that s- some Buddhist poetry has the character of ordinary speech or popular poetry. And um, um, there's a collection that, that Dirk uh, introduced me to that I want to read from very briefly called uh, uh, Splendid, Luminous Splendor, which is a collection of Doha... Hmm? Luminous Melodies. Luminous Melodies, I'm sorry. And uh, I have it right here. Um, and there's a whole bunch of very famous um, patriarchs of the um, Tibetan traditions uh, represented here, including the magnificent um, um, Ganges Mahamudra uh, by Tilopa and other... other uh, and other songs by Naropa and people of that um, legendary ilk, and also people who we've never heard of writing extraordinary, um, ordinary people who have apparently achieved enlightenment, and but they're writing it in sort of a folk style, which involves short verses and repeated phrases, uh, very much like you'd see in a pop song or a folk song. Here's a, 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 one, one example, a song by Saraha. I pay homage to the Buddha. Intertwined is the nature of emptiness and compassion. Emptiness exists inseparably, without interruption. I see the empty yogini, melting, melting, and drinking the sky. She does not see the skies uniting with the sky, nor dwell on the plane of samsaric bondage. I see the empty yogini, melting, melting, and drinking the sky. Such a yogini moved out of her home that is her root. The great taste of compassion is stainless. I see the empty yogini melting, melting, and drinking the sky. Why should anyone else do what Saraha says? Saraha is the person writing the poem. Wandering day and night to melt the sky, I see the empty yogini melting, melting, and drinking the sky. Now, I'm not qualified to interpret this poem. I'm going to venture an interpretation, and I will take it back if shown to be an error. But milking the sky or drinking the sky is, I'm interpreting as taking sustenance from emptiness, that instead of like taking spiritual nourishment and comfort from this profound insight, Let's read one more before we try and get into modern times. Here's a, a, a song by Savaripa, the jungle hunter. There's also songs here by women who have their heads cut off. Sisters, each sister, the sisters who have severed heads, I think each one offers a, a poem in the collection or one sister with a severed head offers two poems. I can't tell which. Um, there's people who are eaters of fish guts. There is a con man who offers a poem of, a radiant poem of, of, uh, of realization. Here's a, here's a jungle hunter. 
in the dense jungle of ignorance roams the deer of the duality of perceiver and perceived. Drawing the bow of both means and prajna, I draw the single arrow of essential reality. Its death is the dying of thoughts. Its flesh is consumed as non-duality. Its taste is experienced as great bliss. The fruition of Mahamudra is attained. Now, I know we're, are we running, are we running short, short on time? Or? Okay, I'm going to uh, beg your indulgence for something entirely different. Um, I would like to read one or two poems by a 20th century Japanese Buddhist named Kenshi Miyazawa. Um, who uh, died in the 1930s at the age of 37. A very original, unusual person, uh, very devout. Um, The poems, he he was a person who worked as a botanist in agricultural experiments, I think in the northern part of Japan. And he was often outdoors, which he liked very much because he liked the landscape, he liked the sky, and he liked to identify many hundreds of, of plants by their scientific names and often calls them out in the course of the, the poem. Um, when he died, there was a small black book uh, by his bed and there's a very humble poem that he never, never sold a poem in his life, of course. It's like, it's like one of those Van Gogh stories where he dies and all of a sudden his fame uh, goes through the roof but completely um, ignored in his lifetime. Um, this poem has some personal importance to me because I believe this is the, one of the first times where I became aware of what I would call the Buddhist heart, as opposed to you know, brilliant insight or, 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 or enlightenment or satori ideas. This is where the actual Buddhist heart struck me. And um, um, I'm gonna, there's many translations. I'm going to read the one that I've, that I've, I've found. Um, strong. Strong in the sense meaning not giving in. Not giving in. Not giving in to the rain. Not giving in to the wind. Not giving in to the summer heat and snow. He is healthy and robust. Unselfish. He never loses his temper. Nor the quiet smile on his lips. He eats four go of unpolished rice, miso, and a few vegetables a day. He does not consider himself in whatever occurs. His understanding comes from observation and experience, and he never loses sight of things. He lives in a little thatched roof hut in a field of the shadows of a pine tree grove. If there is a sick child in the east, he goes there to nurse the child. If there is a tired mother in the west, he goes to her and carries her sheaves. If someone is near death in the south, he goes and says, don't be afraid. If there's strife and lawsuits in the north, he demands that the people put an end to their pettiness. He weeps at the time of drought. He plods about at a loss during the cold summer. Everyone calls him blockhead. No one sings his praises or takes him to heart. This is the sort of person I want to be. Let's let's end there. Thank you. Well, <laughs> shall we shall we um, um, talk or, or get or, or take a little break? I'm in charge. Hmm? I'm in charge. <laughs> I'll take three questions, and then we're, then we're going to take a little break. Then we're going to sit.
No question? Susie has a question? No? No, I'm just waiting. You're all totally resolved. Uh, There's no ambiguity in your view. Uh, no, dust, no dust settles on your mirror. I have a question. Okay. Or a complaint. Or a complaint. I hope it's a complaint. To this Buddhist teaching thing, but I really love poetry, um, and I think one of the things that's drawn me into Buddhism is the same thing that I love in poetry, which is um, like its presence of mind. Mm. That a poet has to be really present, or the best poets, I think, are really present um, and able to appreciate small things that are often overlooked, and that's something that I think is a part of Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree powerfully. Be like in the little haiku poems where they, they see universal truths and like flies, you know, on the fly. Like that's, a, that's, really, that's really quite good. <laughs> anyway, Rick uh, um, had a question? Or? No? Are we, are we otherwise questionless? Okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for for for, for uh, hanging. Oh, darn it! You're the one who should have done it. Anyway, thank you. Let's let's take a break and then come back and sit. This has been a Lions Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org. dot org.